Hey, English 11, what is going on, guys? Today is Monday, April 20th. It is 8.45 p.m. I'm hopping on the podcast tonight to talk about Chapter 2. So here's how this is going to work. Hopefully you guys saw in Classroom I'm only going to release episodes on Mondays and Wednesdays, but I'm going to condense all the information into two episodes, and I'm hoping that that will be much less daunting for you to handle. But I, do, I would like you guys to listen to these episodes. Okay, so chapter two, setting. So, okay, so sorry, let me back up. What am I going to do? I'm going to walk you guys through the first half of chapter two. So I'm going to go from page, well, in my book at least, page 27 to page the top of page 35. Um, and then on Wednesday, I'm going to do 35 to the end of the chapter. So however you're reading it, um, I hope this format will be helpful. So for number one, the very beginning of chapter two takes place in a setting called the Valley of Ashes. I want you to remember that phrase and, and um, become familiar with it. This is one of our major settings. I read a lot of this on um, the last episode, episode 19, if you want to go back and listen to this. But the first two paragraphs of this um chapter start with describing the valley of ashes. So the valley of ashes is in between about halfway between West egg and New York city. So we're in this crummy part of town and it's called the valley of ashes, but that that doesn't really explain what it looks like. It's a very working class area. And we have this giant billboard that hangs over the valley of ashes and it's the billboard is faded and it's we're going to call it the eyes of Dr. TJ Eckelberg. So it used to be an eye doctor, but he has since moved away. And now the billboard has faded. If you guys recall, sorry, I had to take a sip of water. I'm very thirsty. If you guys recall last week, I talked about symbolism and remember you all are skeptical that anything is a symbol because I'm an English teacher and I'm crazy, but here's my requirements for things to be a symbol. It has to come up, it has to be a physical object or it can be an action sometimes. It has to come up several times throughout the reading. And every time it comes up, it has to be associated with like certain people, certain events, certain feelings. And hey, we're in a bad part of town. This whole book is about social class. And guess what? We got this billboard, these giant eyes watching over all of the Valley of Ashes, Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. To me, I got symbol warnings going off all over the place. Okay. Let's just keep an eye on him. Did you guys like that one? Okay, so we see Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, and then Tom and Nick are sitting on the train, and the train stops at the Valley of Ashes. And all of a sudden, Tom aggressively, remember, he's always, like, pushing and pulling Nick around. And he says, like, hey, we're getting off the train. We're going to go meet my girl. And the next thing we know, we're meeting Myrtle Wilson. I want to read an excerpt from the second page of Chapter 2, and this is, this is a lot about Tom, but some of these sentences are so beautifully and accurately written, I have to read them. So he says, the fact, so I'll read the previous sentence. There is always a halt there of, of the train of at least a minute. And it was because of this that I first met Tom Buchanan's mistress. The fact that he had one was insisted upon wherever he was known. His acquaintances resented the fact that he turned up in popular restaurants with her leaving her at a table, sauntered about chatting with whomever he knew, whomsoever he knew. Though I was curious to see her, I had no desire to meet her, but I did. I went up to New York with Tom on the train one afternoon, and when we stopped by the ash heaps, he jumped to his feet 
and taking a hold of my elbow literally forced me from the car. So I'm going to pause there. That's the end of it, guys. So first of all, we have to note that like Tom's a jerk, right? So he, not only does he have a mistress, jerk number one, jerk step number one, he insists upon it wherever he goes. Like he has to, he has to let everybody know that he has a mistress. And then he will take the mistress to popular restaurants, leave her alone at the table, and go walk around and talk to other people. Guys, that is rude, okay? And one thing you're going to learn about Tom is that he has absolutely no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Another sip of water. Okay. So he, that's just Tom. So then they go, so where do they get this mistress? Well, they got to go get her. So they go to this car garage and this is an important character here. George Wilson runs the car garage. Now Tom has established his relationship with Wilson because they have this little exchange that I'm going to read where Tom says, hello, Wilson, old man, says, said Tom, slapping him jovially on the shoulder. How's business? I can't complain, answered Wilson unconvincingly. When are you going to sell me that car? Next week. I've got my man working on it now. Works pretty slow, don't he? So Wilson is just trying to like kind of chide Tom, like enter into this friendly man-to-man -man banter. But Tom, Tom, which is so typical of him, wants to like reassert that he's the, you know, alpha. So he says, no, he doesn't said Tom coldly. And if you feel that way about it, maybe I'd better sell it somewhere else after all. And then Wilson like relents. He gives away. Oh, uh, I don't mean that. Wilson explained quickly. I just meant, uh, right. So like Tom's just reminding him like, Hey buddy, I'm in charge. A very Tom move. Then, um, all of a sudden Wilson says, He's looking around for, um, or sorry, I should say, Tom starts to look around impatiently. Oh, I got to read this part. And then Myrtle appears. Now, oh, let me read this before I analyze her. Here we go. I heard footsteps on the stairs, and in a moment, the thickish figure of a woman blocked out the light from the office door. She was in the middle 30s and faintly stout, but she carried her surplus flesh sensuously as some women can. Let's pause for a sec. So the first thing we should notice is like Daisy is this very petite, very beautiful, very wealthy woman. And Myrtle is the opposite of her in a lot of ways physically, meaning she is described as both stout and having surplus flesh. But I love this line when it says she carries her surplus flesh sensuously as some women can. Okay, let me keep reading. Her face, above a spotted dress of dark blue crepe de chine, contained no facet or gleam of beauty. But there was an immediately there was an immediately perceptible vitality about her, as if the nerves of her body were continuously smoldering. <laughs> So Nick says, like, you know, she's really not, like, pretty, right? And Daisy is very pretty. But she's got sort of this, uh, what's the word we're all looking for? I don't know. It says the nerves in her body were continuously smoldering. Okay, so hold on. Then it says, she smiled slowly and walking through her husband as if he were a ghost, shook hands with Tom, looking him flush in the eye. So she like immediately made very seductive eye contact with him. Uh oh, here we go, guys. It says, then she wet her lips and without turning around, spoke to her husband in a soft, coarse voice. 
get some chairs, why don't you? Remember, she's talking to her husband. So why don't you? So somebody can sit down. Oh, well, sure. Wilson agreed hurriedly and went toward the little office, mingling immediately with the cement color of the walls. <laughs> I think that's a great line. A white ashen dust veiled his dark suit and his pale hair as it veiled everything in the vicinity except his wife, who moved closer to Tom. So then she scooches in and Tom says, I want to see you get on the next train. And she's like, oh my gosh, okay, great. So they meet up in New York City. And then um, when, you know, uh, what's his name? Tom, of course, demands that Myrtle not take the same train as him. And so when Tom and Nick get back on the train, um, Tom says, terrible place, isn't it? And then um, Nick says, yeah, like, doesn't her husband object to her having an affair, basically? And Tom says, Wilson, he thinks she goes to see her sister in New York. He's so dumb. He doesn't know he's alive. Okay. So then we go to New York City. And there's a lot of observations about this character of Myrtle Wilson and this scene that I want to point out to you guys. So the first thing is, we, on page 31, when we get to New York City, um, when we get to New York City, we go to a newsstand, and Myrtle buys the following objects. Um, at the newsstand, she bought a copy of Town Tattle and a moving picture magazine, and in the station drugstore, some cold cream and a small flask of perfume. Okay, so Town Tattle is like, I don't want to say a trashy magazine, but it's... It's just like it sounds. It has these stories in it. It's a very low reading level. I guess you could compare it to maybe like Us Weekly. I'm not judging anyone who reads Us Weekly. I would take an Us Weekly these days. Um, but that's what it is. Okay, then, and I just love this scene so much. Fitzgerald is so good at showing us and not telling us. Okay, so I'm going to um, I'm gonna read. I'm going to do some voices, and I'm going to do some sound effects. So here we go. She says, um... Upstairs in the solemn echoing upstairs in the solemn echoing drive, she let four taxi cabs drive away before she selected a new one, lavender colored with gray upholstery. And in this we slid from the mass of the station into the glowing sunshine. So first, she will only get into a cab that's purple, which I think is hilarious. But immediately she turned sharply from the window and leaning forward tapped on the glass. So she taps on the glass of the of the taxi cab. Like she's tapping on the glass. I just think it's annoying someone tapping on the glass. I want to get one of those dogs, she said earnestly. I want to get a dog. I want to get one for the apartment. They're nice to have a dog. We backed up to a gray old man who bore an absurd resemblance to John D. Rockefeller. In a basket, swung from his neck, cowered a dozen very recent puppies of an inter indeterminate breed. What kind are they? Asked Mrs. Oh, sorry. That was, that was Myrtle. What kind are they? Asked Mrs. Wilson eagerly as he came to the window. All kinds. What kind do you want, lady? I'd like to get one of those police dogs. I don't suppose you've got that kind. The man peered doubtfully into the basket, plunged his hands, and drew one up, wriggling, him, wriggling by the back of his neck. That's not a police dog, said Tom. Okay, so they buy this dog like for no reason. She can't even bring the dog home for God's sake. Like why is this woman buying a dog? Okay. I hope you're getting this magical thing called nuance, right? Like it's not what we tell you about her character. It's what we show you about her character. Clearly she just wants to spend money for the sake of spending money because she doesn't have any money to spend. So when she's with Tom, she wants to act like she's rich. But she's not rich. 
And you know what the problem is? She doesn't know how to act rich. You know why? Because she's not. And this is the thing about this book that's so cool is it really talks about social class, not in the terms of quantity of money, but in terms of rules of behavior, right? Myrtle's got no clue. And she seems so tacky when we meet her. And she seems so different from Daisy when we meet her. And that's kind of the whole point is that Fitzgerald is saying, you can't just tell me that money's money. And once you have it, you're invite, you know, you're in and all the secrets. That's not how it works in America. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. So they go back up again. Um, and at 158th Street, the cab stops and they get out and they go up to this random apartment. Okay. I want to read the description of the apartment. The apartment was on the top floor, a small living room, a small dining room, a small bedroom, and a bath. The living room was crowded to the doors with a set of tapestried furniture entirely too large for it so that to move about was to stumble continuously over scenes of ladies swinging in the gardens of Versailles. Okay, so I just want you to think about this because chapter two is juxtaposed with chapter three. In chapter two, we got this party in this tiny apartment. And it's like chapter two is Myrtle's world. And you want to think that the apartment is tiny and all the living room furniture is like too big for the apartment. So when you're trying to move, you're always like stumbling around. It's just kind of awkward. Okay. Um, but that's the thing. Every single thing about this party is going to juxtapose chapter three, which is Gatsby's party. So you know, just because you know Gatsby, He's not going to have furniture that doesn't fit the room. He's going to have furniture that fits the room perfectly. He's not going to have small, small, small. He's going to have the biggest, baddest thing you've ever seen. Okay, so hold on. We, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, so then, you know, it's like the afternoon turns in the evening. And then at the bottom of this page, Nick says, I have been drunk just twice in my life. And the second time was that afternoon. So everything that happened has a dim, hazy cast over it. Although until after eight o'clock, the apartment was full of cheerful sun. Okay, so let me let me go back a little bit. So, like we talked about, everything in this chapter gets juxtaposed with chapter three. So one thing I want to emphasize here is that like everything's small, it's very crowded. And at the sentence right before the one I read, it says, "Meanwhile, Tom brought out a bottle of whiskey from a locked bureau door." So. So alcohol is a big deal in this book. And in the movie, I think this is right in the movie. I think in almost every single scene, at least with Tom and Daisy in it, there's always an alcoholic beverage. And this is really a symbol of the times, right? The twenties. So it, so, so it's not to say like, Oh, everybody drank all the time, but the alcohol selected for the party fits with the scene. So in this scene, we're at a crowded apartment. There's not a lot of room. And of course everyone's, just like drinking out of this random bottle of whiskey. Okay, hold on, let me go to the next page. So um, then at, toward the middle of page 34, people start to arrive. And there's a couple guests that are going to be just key for this scene. Well, I guess one of them is key later on in the book. And I want to highlight who those people are. So the first is the sister. Okay, this is Myrtle's sister. The sister Catherine was a slender, worldly girl of about 30 with a solid sticky bob of red hair and a complexion powdered milky white. 
Her eyebrows had been plucked and then drawn on again at a more rakish angle, but the efforts of nature toward the restoration of the old alignment gave a blurred air to her face. That's funny, guys. When she moved about, there was an incessant clicking as innumerable pottery bracelets jingled up and down her arms. I mean, you got to give Fitzgerald credit. These characters are so vivid. It's incredible. She came in with such a propriety haste and looked around so possessively at the furniture. I wondered if she lived there. But when I asked her, she laughed immoderately, repeated my question aloud, and told me she lived with a girlfriend at a hotel. (laughs) Mr. McKee was a pale feminine man from the flat below. He had just shaved and there was a white spot of lather on his cheekbone, and he was most respectful in his greeting to everyone in the room. He informed me that he was in the artistic game, and I gathered later that he was a photographer and had made the dim enlargement of Mrs. Wilson's mother, which hovered like an ectoplasm on the wall. His wife was shrill, languid, handsome, and horrible. She told me with pride that her husband had photographed her a hundred and twenty-seven times since they had been married. Okay. Um, the other thing I want you guys to notice about this party is that like people don't really know each other. Like we'll get to more of that later, but like this Mr. McKee character and Mrs. McKee and Daisy and Tom, like nobody really, or sorry, um, Myrtle and Tom, nobody really knows people, but they're all hanging out because they all want a party. And that's another thing that we're going to hear about at Gatsby's party. Like this idea that even like a big party lacks this lacks like intimacy. Like you don't get to anyone's real secrets. It's just a bunch of people faking who they are. And that's what we're going to have at this party. And then when a, a sliver of truth does come out, it's like awkward for everybody. Okay. Um, we're going to stop for the night. We're at the top of page 35 and then tomorrow night we're going to do pages 35 to 42. So I hope that helped you guys out a little bit in your reading. And if you have any questions that I didn't cover in those first couple pages, please email me. And I would love to talk about them on the podcast on Wednesday night. Cause if you have questions, chances are other people have questions. Okay. So that's it. Keep reading, stay with it. And I'll see you guys on Wednesday.